This is Maine Coast Doc Talk, a podcast bringing you the latest news and stories from Maine's working waterfronts. This podcast is brought to you by the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association. I'm your host, Ben Martens. Welcome to the latest episode of Maine Coast Doc Talk. The commercial industry is extremely complex and it's impacted not only by the regulations of today, but by things that happened generations ago out on the water. Before there was petroleum and oil that was drilled out of the ground, our nation relied on whale oil to light our houses, streets, businesses. The fishermen of New England supplied that product. The Marine Mammal Protection Act shut down the practice after it became clear that the whales of the Atlantic were endangered of being fished to extinction. Over decades, many species made fantastic recoveries, but the right whale hasn't been so fortunate. Today, only 400 or so right whales are left, and the species is listed on the Endangered Species Act. A group of environmental nonprofits came together to sue the federal government to get them to put even more restrictions and rules in place to protect those whales, and we wanted to explore what the impact of trying to protect and save the right whales might have on the fishermen of today. To do so, I ventured down the peninsula to Cundy's Harbor in a gray Harpsville, Maine, to chat with one of my favorite fishermen, Terry Alexander. Terry owns a gillnet boat and a trawl boat, which fish for groundfish, squid, and monkfish, and he's been appointed to serve on the committee that's exploring ways to protect the right whales. I had a great conversation with Terry, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Now let's get to the interview. Terry Alexander is a fisherman from Cundy's Harbor in Harpswell, Maine, and is currently serving his third three-year term as a member of the New England Fishery Management Council. As a member of that council, Terry was asked to serve on the Atlantic Large Whale Take Reduction Team. Currently, the Take Reduction Team is made up of over 60 individuals from industry, state, and federal agencies, and also environmental groups, and is working to develop new rules and regulations focused on protecting North Atlantic right whales. Uh, Over the past year to a year and a half, this issue has really uh, blown up. We've seen a lot about it in the press, and it's it's starting to filter down to the docks. And uh, Terry, I'm, I'm wondering if you can kind of start us off by saying, like, walking us through what happened to led to this group being formed and, and with a focus on protecting the right whales. So in 2017, we had 18, 17 mortalities from, on right whales, I think. That year, they changed their migratory pattern, and they ended up in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, where there's a huge snow crab fishery in Canada, I believe... All 17 mortalities were actually traced back to them at this point. And so that's, that's mortalities from whales that are getting tangled in, right. in fishing gear. Right. Not, not just uh, tanglement, entanglements, but uh, mortalities. These, these whales actually died. 17 of these whales died. There's only 400. At that point, there were 400 and there's two models. They yep. changed the models last year. Uh, one said that there was 452 in 2017. Now the new model comes out with 411. I don't know what the difference is in those models because I do not understand his models. It's, it seems like with that number, we don't need to model the population. Right. We could just count them, right? Yeah, like yeah. that's. Um, but so that that's you know one side of the equation is like there's not a lot of whales in the ocean. Right. Some of them were a fairly large percentage of them were uh, had mortality issues, and then. Did I understand correctly? There, there wasn't a lot of reproduction taking place either on the other side of that equation. Exactly. But we've been in that point uh, in 2000. I think there was only one right whale born. This year, thank, thankfully, we've had seven born. Yep. Last yep. year, we had uh, 
Cyril, I believe, is the yep. number. Yeah. And you'll have to double check me on that. No, but, I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we had no calves born last year, but we've had seven this year, which is good. But we need to be up in the double digits, uh, at least, you know, 20 to actually hold the population where it is. And the right whale doesn't produce till it's 10 years old. So they live a fairly long life, so they can produce for a long time, but uh, they only produce every three or four years. And. I, I know way too much about right whales. I know. Yeah. Jeez. I know. We're going to be sending you I'm on like a whale Jack watch Hanner. cruise. I'm like a Jack Hanner of uh, <laughs> whales now for some reason. And so. So, so these whales, they reproduce down south and then migrate up to Canadian waters? Is uh, that? So the babies are born mostly off Florida. Okay. And then they migrate up the coast and they're usually in Massachusetts Bay, February, I believe, mm-hmm. February. They show up there. And there's a huge population of them there. Not all of them, but there's there was a lot of them there last spring. Um, and then for some reason, they because of they eat copepods, some kind of copepod. And the copepods in the Gulf of Maine have reduced, whether it's climate change or you know water temperature change or whatever. And those the fish, the food that they're seeking are in the Gulf of St. Lawrence now compared to our food. Um, so they go around and they're migrating up there and uh, the Canadians put in uh, these dam areas, dynamic area management areas last summer and they had no entanglements. So, uh, so the Canadians put in some management areas to reduce the mortality after what happened the previous right, year. Right, but. Yeah, big but. Okay. Yeah, there's a big but there. Because the snow crab fishery runs from Newfoundland all the way up around New Brunswick, Cape Breton. Um, I mean, it, it, it's a huge area. Yep. And whether or not the whales are actually there at that time is debatable, I, I think, you know, in those areas. We haven't, see, we haven't seen any evidence of that. But there's also it, where they come up into the Gulf of Maine, they go down east, hit up into the Bay of Fundy, then go around the tip of Nova Scotia. Um, there's also a lobster fishery that fishes up along the east side of uh, Nova Scotia up into Cape Breton. You know, our lobstermen here have made a lot of effort to reduce entanglements with mm-hmm. breakaways and stuff. And so hopefully the Canadians will get on board with marking the gear and so we'll know where the entanglements come from. Because since 2009, we've had one confirmed, one confirmed U.S. case of a lobster entanglement lobster trap entanglement on the east coast one there are some unknown ones that's what really frustrates me it's like you know we've had one confirmed case uh, so why are we going to penalize five thousand guys and so now the we had a a high mortality year and then out of that i believe there's a lawsuit Right. Yeah. And is that what is prompting this or was this the federal government coming in to say we need to do something? What what kind of led to to this take reduction team really focusing in on on right whales? Uh, lawsuit. Lawsuit. I think uh, I think the federal government would have come in mm-hmm. because they care about whales like we all care about whales. Nobody likes a whale any more than a fisherman because they're fun to watch. Right. Yep. yep. Um, but uh, the uh, I think the lawsuit prompted it. But. NOAA as a whole and trickle down to GAFO here in our, in our area are 
really serious about protecting white, right whales. The Micah Cero, who works for GAFO, he's their lead person on Marine Mammal Protection Act. He uh, came to the council and asked, begged, because the council was never involved in any kind of right whale management whatsoever. And the, the New England Fishery Management Council manages the federal waters fisheries. Except for lobster. Except for lobster. Yes. 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 Lobster is managed by Atlantic states and the, and, and the states themselves. Right. Right. Um, and they, he came to us and begged for the council to be involved in this. And so I volunteered as a liaison to them for the council. I'm on this podcast speaking for Terry Alexander, not for the council. Yes, definitely. So. <laughs> Very clear. Yeah. Um, and, and so you, you have this opportunity to participate in this process, and now you know way more about whales than you ever wanted to. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of other issues that are um, facing the right whales, whether that's climate change, noise pollution, uh, plastics in the ocean. We talked a little bit about entanglements, but you know, why are we focusing on the fishermen as an important part of the equation to, to fix um, from the federal government and uh, some of the environmental groups who have been focusing in on this issue. So the biggest portion of mortalities are entanglements, mm -hmm. um, but there are ship strikes in there too. Don't quote me in this, but 85%, I believe, Ben, of right whales have scars from entanglements, which I think it shows something's happening. Yeah, something's happening. Yep. Uh, yep. And I think a ship strike is fairly obvious when they get them because there's total, I mean, basically the whale gets run over. Right. You know, you know right. what I mean? So uh, we have implemented 10 knot speeds to slow that that down, and I, I think it has. But, you know, uh, you know, there are ship strikes in there. Um, but, I mean, for the most part, it. It's definitely entanglements that, and the entanglements caused by man. Yep. And yep. the man is us. You know? Fishermen. Yeah. And and so there's been a lot of focus on lobster fishery. Yeah. Uh, and then in can Canadian waters, the crab fishery. And those are pot fisheries. Yeah. Um, are those the only people that need to be worried about? Absolutely not. Uh, anybody who fishes a gillnet anywhere, um, anybody that fishes a long line anywhere, um, we have. There's a proposal on the table right now, if you look at your mater background materials, that to close Area 537 for five months, I think. Area 537 is where a lot of people that fish out of Massachusetts and Rhode Island would fish their monkfish gear. It's a big area, and there's a, there's a huge Jonah crab fishery there. Um, so it's not only lobstermen, it's Jonah crabs, it's uh, longline, it's gillnet groundfish, and um, and monkfish. So, and so skates. anybody anybody that's leaving their gear right. in the water for with any a, period of time with a buoy on it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Those are the ones that need to be paying attention to what's happening in this process. Absolutely. And what types of changes are being proposed? You know, we hear a lot of different things about trap cuts or gear reductions or closed areas. What, what's on the table right now um, in terms of how? the take reduction team is kind of thinking through. So I guess what's their goal and how are they thinking through accomplishing that goal? Okay. So right now I'm on two working groups. One is the gear marking group and one is the week rope group. 
There are two other groups, but I'll, I'll get to those after. Uh, I am on the gear making group, which the Coast Guard came to us in December at the council and asked us to have the TRT recommend another mark on the end lines. Of so the, what do you mean by that? Okay, so up on, up on top of the water, uh, within 10 feet of the buoy, have a three-foot mark. So if a, a whale's entangled, a particular color, I think red is what they're looking for, uh, but they want a three-foot mark saying so they can tell where that whale was entangled. Right now, we have no idea where the whale's entangled because the, the areas of with gear marking are huge. You know, we have a couple distinct marks for Jeffries and uh, down east, anyway. We have two distinct marks for very small areas in these areas. Other than that, George's Bank, Southern New England, and the Gulf of Maine all have the same exact marking. And so this is just a way to identify the gear that's right. out in the ocean in terms of where it's actually placed right. in the ocean. Yeah, and if they, it gets entangled with the whale, we can tell where the, where the uh, gear is coming from. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, we've had a couple of conference calls on gear marking. There's a few proposals. The state of Maine wants its own gear mark. The state of New Hampshire wants its own gear mark. Uh, we haven't heard anything from Massachusetts on that, but I'm assuming Massachusetts would want their own gear mark too. I, I haven't talked to anybody from there. so. Um, but because they want to get, I don't, know, I don't want to say blame, but if they're going to get Accused? Is that a better word? I guess it's data collection. Right? Data like collection. Yeah. We are looking to figure out where entanglements are taking place, right, and right, so right. You know, so we if they're going to get coming from, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's a that's a vast area. I don't know how many square miles, but it's got to be three hundred thousand square miles. Considering the Gulf of Maine's one hundred fifty thousand square miles, you know what I mean? Right. So Throw George's Bank in there, and that's a, that's a big area yeah. to be trying to. And then Southern New England, yep. you know, yep. and and uh, the state of Maine has a proposal on the table now to put the gear marking. Right now, you only have to have gear marking in federal waters, but that goes. It'll go to I believe it's the Purse Bridge in every peninsula. That'll so it goes into the bays. It goes into everywhere where, uh, in in state waters, which they've been exempt from this up to this point so but the state of maine has offered that up so i'm so assuming that'll come through that's one one piece of work that's being done right now is looking at better markings for gear to understand where entanglements may or may not be taking place right um what other changes are they talking about uh weak rope so the rope we fish now at three eights is a 38 3800 pound big breaking strength and so that means the, the rope actually breaks yeah, and it's under that type of, uh, of pressure, right? Right. Uh, the rope that we had back before all these rules came out at 3 eighths was at a 1,700-pound breaking strength. It was rag rope. Right now we have steel line. Steel line's a lot stronger. And so the goal of this would be when the whale hits the line, they aren't dragging buoys around and, and traps right. or gear. Yeah. It breaks. It breaks. Right. And, it, and hopefully there's a bitter end that peels off the whale's back and it keeps going without too much damage. Um, but personally, my opinion is, and this is no opinion of anybody else but me, is that uh, that's the best case scenario for the fishery. We're not sure, though. We have done no testing on gill netters or longliners at 1,700 pounds. I don't know if that's enough for them. Yep. Um you're hauling up a gill net that's filled with fish right i i don't know if that's enough ben so yeah. um it 
it may very well be, and I've been encouraging them to put some kind of thing on my boat to test whether or not that's enough, but we haven't done that yet. I mean, it's been a fairly fast process. We came up with this idea in October, and it's been kind of a crappy winter, so we haven't fished much this winter. <laughs> no, the wind won't stop blowing. Up no, here. it won't. It won't. So that's on, and seven, there's 1,700-pound end lines, and then there's 1,700-pound sleeves, which the South Shore guys have worked with, which they're having pretty good results with. So, so explain to me what a sleeve does. It's like a Chinese finger. All right, it's one of those finger traps that you put your fingers together and you can't pull them out. Basically, that's it. And it breaks away at 1,700 pounds. So it puts together two pieces of line. Yeah. And that's that's now the weak spot in the yeah. line that would break away. And there's a few proposals. There's one every 40 feet. There's one every 500 feet. And then there's one, there might be three. I can't remember the other one right yep. now. Paul. Yep. But that's on that's on the webpage, which you'll have posted. Those are a couple of options of things that we could be um, seeing in the future. And those... Those will cost fishermen money and new gear and and whatnot. What are some of the worst options that are being talked about right now that could have bigger impacts well, to the fleet? Okay, bigger impacts to the fleet would, would be uh, this ropeless fishing. Uh, how to get numbers out of the ropeless guys that present their case. Um, a good example of ropeless fishing is in New Zealand. In New Zealand, they catch these things called rock lobsters. And rock lobsters love each other. Our lobsters hate each other. But rock lobs, more, uh, if a rock lobs is in a trap, the other ones are going to find out why he's in that trap and what he's doing in that trap. So he's like the bait. Okay, so they put some bait in, and the rock lobs, first one goes in. Then if the bait's gone, it doesn't matter. They leave these things sitting 30 days. And it's not like our fishery where the, if you run out of bait, you run out of lobsters, right? Nobody's going to crawl in there for nothing. But down there... The bait is the other rock lobster because they love to hang out with each other. So these guys have big traps. They yeah. put it in the ocean. They yeah. get filled with, with lobsters. And yeah. then they can go and haul them up without using line. Yeah. Right? So I think the biggest lobstermen in New Zealand, I'm, I'm trying to remember, but I, these are these are always off the top of my head. 210 traps. Okay, that's the biggest lobstermen. And they're the only lobstermen in that area. It's not like our fishery up here. They have 84,000 square miles of ocean that they can fish by An themselves. individual fishermen have right. access to. Right. So there's some area-based management there that right. they get to uh, yeah. it's exclusive. So it's okay. all them. And then uh, they'll go out and haul them every 30 days. They go out. They have a computer on the boat that shoots down the signal to, with a transducer on the bottom of it, shoots down the signal to the trap. It says, okay, time to release. It releases the trap. Buoy floats up. They haul it up. But there's a 2% failure rate now of those things ejecting. 2%, which is, that's considerable. It doesn't sound like much, but if you've got a string of gear out there and you're fishing 20-trap trawls, like our guys do, a lot yeah. of them, 15-20-trap yeah. trawls at $100 each, plus the buoys and stuff. And the buoys are $3,500. Each one is $3,500. Plus the haul out to put the transducer on plus the computer that goes in your wheelhouse that may fail at any time because we all have computers. We know how they are. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's so, going to be an expensive. So ropeless is another option that is being floated that it would be very expensive and, and hasn't really been tested on 
on the gear that we we use in the Gulf of Maine at right. this point. Yeah, and and the ropeless in New Zealand is self-serving because they get poached. Every trap they haul had ten, could have a potential for ten thousand dollars worth of lobsters in it. They get twenty five dollars a pound for these things, and they're huge traps. That, so that's ropeless. What yeah. else we got on the table? Closed areas. Closed areas. So that's taking big chunks of the Gulf of Maine, George's Bank, and saying certain times of the year. Certain times of the year when the whales are migrating through. Like how how would they have have there been substantial discussions about what that would actually look like? Uh, yep. In practice. Yep. Uh, we've had lots of guys that talked about like five thirty seven, a big area down off of uh, southern New England. Um, you know the whales migrate up through there at a certain time, so they they do have that defined. There already is a closed area in the Bay of uh, Bass Bag, uh, a huge closed area. These guys are shut out February till, geez, I think end of April. Yeah, big big chunk of time. Yeah, and, you know, and that's why we're having our TRT yeah. meeting before the end of April, so those guys can go lobstering on day one of May for us. So, gotcha. um, but uh, so we we already have those implemented. Uh, you know, I mean, they know the migratory patterns. But white whales have been spotted off New Hampshire last summer. Uh, they've been spotted in a lot of areas. And is one whale enough to close an area? I, uh, we don't know. And what kind of monitoring do you need to do to um, make sure you're closing at the right time in the right areas? Well, they do aerial flights yep. constantly um, looking for right whales. Um, and hopefully they have some good data to prove what they're doing, you know. What, what we're discussing when we're talking about closed, different closed areas. Uh, but they're not acting like they have over the last few years. They're acting different than they have in the past. So I'm not sure that data is any good anymore. You right. know? So you might need more consistent monitoring to have basically real-time closures. <laughs> right, have... which, are, which are what dynamic area management is what the Canadians are doing. But, I mean, that would devastate the lobster fleet, trying to figure out, okay, time to haul your gear out of there. Dynamic area management, we had them before, and we used to work on them with, uh, in the gillnet fishery and stuff like that, but you know, I'm not sure they're effective. And then the final one that I've heard is reducing the number of lines in the water, reducing gear. What is, what is that looking like, and what has the focus on that been? Well, we've had some proposals mm-hmm. at the TRT from different groups about cutting traps on the water, cutting everybody's gear down. Um, but I'm not sure where that's going to go. Um, ASMFC has some uh, proposal on the water now that they, they're contemplating measures to keep the right whales out of jeopardy. Okay, so what we're working on with the slop suit is jeopardy. And if the right whales are in jeopardy, then we need to do something. Uh, ASMFC has made no recommendations yet. Um, they meet the week after the TRT does. And the plan development team that they used will not have any recommendations for that meeting. So, so what's the timing for this look like? I'm going to guess we're going to have a proposed rule sometime this summer. Really? Yeah. So even though you're still in the process of trying to understand what the options are, we're looking at a pretty short time to actually put in, putting some rules together. Right, right. I, I I would just guess. That's just me thinking out loud. Um, I think that sometime this summer we're going to have determination on Jeopardy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that will oblige the feds to propose a rule. And, you know, so. And so now explain to me how these th- pieces fit together. 
So you've got the take reduction team and they're looking at these different options. Mm -hmm. um, but they aren't the ones that actually are going to make the decision, right? No, we're going to put a proposal out to NIMS who yep. will, will be at the table. Um, there's 61 people at the table. We're supposed to come to a consensus, which, you know. Could be difficult. It could be. Yeah, I can yep. see that. Yeah, uh -huh. considering there are fish folks, there are environmental groups, there are people who research whales. And, yep. You know, yep. I mean, they're a, it's a diverse group, right? Which it should be because we're talking about a public resource. But uh, I, I'm not sure how we're going to come to a consensus because, uh, you know, I'm new to this. I've only been on it for a year and a half. And I was, you know, it's hard enough to come to a consensus at the council that I'm, I sit on with 17 people. So I don't know how we're going to come up with a consensus for 60, with 61 people. It's going to be a long meeting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Not... We get four days. So, yeah. oh, And I've been goodness. encouraging every person who's involved to come to the meeting. It, yeah. It's important. I think it's important, you know. Talk to me about that. What? Why is this important for people to show up to? Well, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, the, the public's invited to speak their piece for the day at the results of the discussion for the day. And they, they have their chance to stand up and tell them why they think ropeless fishing wouldn't work, why they think weak ropes wouldn't work, why, why they think gear marking is too, too hard to do. Right. You know what right. I mean? I mean, the public needs to be involved. You know, I mean, just stand up and say your piece. You gotta, I mean, there's always time. There's always time for people to be able to stand up and say their time, say their piece. I, the feds in this country, thank God we live in this country because they, the public has an opinion, and we should, we should listen to the public. I wonder if you have any recommendations for, for how to engage. in Showing up is, is one thing and very important, um, and I would be encouraging fishermen to do so, but it sounds like something is going to happen, right? There's going to be some changes that are going to come. How can the fishermen be working together or just by themselves to kind of help form something that could work for them what's what does that look like well i think uh the proposed rule when that comes out it's very important for individual fishermen to engage and write a letter of a comment on their proposed rule you know i mean we listen to that stuff the feds listen to that stuff and it's it's very important for people i kind of look around my harbor and it's totally dependent on the lobster fishery I think uh, there's two of us that actually ground fish out of here. You know, we have a few guys that go a little bit in the summertime, but, you know, the cod quota is so low that they really can't go very much. Um, but, I mean, there's two of us that actually go ground fishing around here. And uh, on a year-round basis, I squid fish in the summer, but um, I people need to be involved. I mean, uh, you know, come to the meetings, stand up, speak your piece. I mean, the, the, the chairman is always good about letting people comment. I mean, if we got 200 people in the room, not everybody's going to get a chance, but... But it'll say something. Right. Right? Yeah, it'll say, you know, you disagree, right? Yeah. Uh, this is the way it should be, you know? And you don't have to get up and give a big, long speech. Just say, I agree with Ben, who just got up and spoke before me. I agree with him. My council that I work on, I'm not talking about the TRT, but my council listens to that stuff. I've been swayed... A hundred times with my votes at the council. I've been on this almost seven years now. I mean, I always put public comment, give it a lot of weight. Some of them aren't so popular with my fishing friends. Some of them aren't so popular with my environmental friends. But, you know, I mean, uh, I, 
John Bullard said to me one time, he goes, he goes, if I've pissed off the fishermen and the environmentalists in, in the course of the day, I've done my job right. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but it seemed right. It seemed reasonable. Hey, you know, as long as you're pissing people off, you're doing your job right. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, Everybody yeah. needs to be angry about something. Right, right. Um, well, Terry, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and kind of walk through this because I know that there's a lot of misinformation out there and there's a lot of confusion around this process. I think that my big takeaway is like, it's complicated, but fishermen and community members need to be engaged um, in thinking about how they can help shape something that works for their business and their community. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. I mean, and come to Providence. And so we will uh, we'll make sure to put on our website and uh, social media for the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association all the different pieces of information to get people uh, to know where they go and, and the different pieces of uh, documentation around the meeting. Uh, it is in Providence, which is not an easy trip, but it can be a fun one. Yeah. Providence is a good place to yeah, be. Yeah, it's got so. good, ho- good restaurants. You got Federal Hill, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a good place. It's a good place. So I, I would encourage people to come to Providence and get up at the end of the day and say peace. I, I, I really appreciate you participating in that process because I know it is a lot of time and energy, but um, we are, we're very fortunate to have you sitting there for, for the council and for Maine and, and um, for the fishermen up here. Well, I thank you. Thank, thank you. you, Terry. Thanks All for right. taking the time. All right. Maine Coast Dock Talk is a production of the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association, an industry-based nonprofit that identifies and fosters ways to restore the fisheries of the Gulf of Maine and sustain Maine's fishing communities for future generations. For more information about our work, to make a donation, or to listen to previous episodes of Doc Talk, you can visit our website, maincoastfisherman.org.